0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Miracles are at the foundation of our biblical faith. It begins with creation itself. Is a miracle. I mean, after all, how does a universe that never before existed have a definite beginning? Yet, beyond simply declaring something a miracle, we tend not to think much deeper about their essence and their cause. And last week, as we opened Matthew chapter 10, we immediately took a detour into the weird world of quantum physics for the purpose of. Rethinking Miracles, since miracles would be part of the tool bag that each of the twelve disciples Christ sent out would be equipped with. Now I'm sure it's going to be a relief to some of you to learn that we won't have too much of a review of last week's material. I do want to reiterate, however that the purpose for our excursion into this field of science was not as a beginning course in quantum mechanics, nor was it to suggest the transfer of the realm of miracles from the hand of God into the workings of an autonomous nature. At least not as we've typically thought of nature. Rather it was to demonstrate that despite the bold claims by modern scientists that we have a good handle on the behavior and even origination of the makeup of the natural world that includes the expanse of the universe, an orderly structure inexplicable to the scientific world, which has as its underlying foundation unformed energy waves and bizarre subatomic particles. The field of quantum physics is proving that much of what was considered settled science to have been a mirage. The bottom line is that scores of experiments since the early 2000s through today are proving that nature is far stranger and more alien than we ever had any idea about, or anything we might have ever imagined. Therefore the idea that miracles are supernatural, that is, miracles do not obey the laws of nature, Has always been based on the assumption that we know what the fabric and what the boundaries of the natural world are. Therefore, when we observe something that happens that doesn't fit with our understanding of the natural fabric and its boundaries, (laughs) resurrecting the dead, for instance, then these things are deemed as supernatural beyond, outside that which is natural. The secular world has no real answer for the supernatural, much more than to either question the veracity of the observer to deny it is happening, or to just owe it all to chance. The religious world has a different solution, God, yet is it? that when God commands a miracle that it amounts to a divine intrusion directed from heaven into the physical realm that we earthbound creatures live in? Is God overriding, is He momentarily altering the laws of nature that He created? Or might it be that God for a particular purpose commands that nature behave in ways that it's always been able to behave, but we've just not known that it could. That is, what we call miracles were built into the substance of our universe from the beginning, at that moment that science calls the Big Bang. Although only now, We are starting to recognize that perhaps only God on high understands the intricacies, the capabilities of it, in ways that humans may never be able to. And even though we are starting to see deeper into the inner workings of God's creation, that doesn't mean that we will ever be able to harness it in the ways that He does. Now the Apostle Paul made a comment to believers, the believers in Corinth that needs to be resurrected from history's dustbin, and made the motto for believers everywhere in, in, in this, our, the early part of the third millennium .AD, no matter what name we might choose to label ourselves with. From 1 Corinthians 3:19, he says this. For the wisdom of this world is nonsense, as far as God is concerned, inasmuch as the Tanakh says He traps the wise in their own cleverness. Quantum physics is proving the truth of Paul's observation. Not that long ago miracles were accepted as established fact, even among non-believers. Then upon the Enlightenment era in Europe that began in the early 1700s, the academic elite in science dismissed the notion of miracles, even of God and of the spiritual realm. And to this day science looks down its nose upon those of us who believe in the reality of God and of miracles. It was science that has arrogantly told us they alone have the answers for how the universe, the natural world came into being, how it operates, how it's going to end. They look at us and they demand, who are we going to believe? Who are we going to believe? Them with all their brain power and knowledge and advanced technology along with the consensus of opinion of experts? Or shall we believe some ancient volume of myth and superstition called the Bible? Now as of 2020, the intellectually honest within the scientific community are no longer certain how to describe some of the most basic operations of the universe that even 10 years ago they took for granted. If one particle can know what another particle is doing across the expanse of the universe and instantaneously alter its characteristics, if an energy wave of probability can only become something of tangible substance when a conscious, sentient being observes it, could not even science humble itself enough? To call the observable but unexplainable unexplainable, a miracle that has to have a higher source. Miracles happened, only a few of them are recorded for us in the Bible. Miracles continue to happen, and especially as believers we should expect them to happen in our lives. As part of our journey with God. You know, I've talked to many who have miracle stories. I have experienced a couple myself. We mustn't let those elite few who do not know God have no use for God, but they value only their own human intellect and their opinions of their peers to ever convince us otherwise. So, with this concept of miracles in mind, we read that Christ issues the authority for his 12 disciples to wield this beneficent but inexplicable power over God's created nature for the good of the humanity that they're going to go out and encounter. Jewish humanity for the time being. Since we only read a few uh, uh, opening verses of Matthew chapter 10, let's begin by reading, reading and all. We're going to read the entire chapter of Matthew 10. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1234. One, two, three, four. Yeshua called his twelve Talmudim, his disciples, and he gave them authority to drive out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and weakness. These are the names of the twelve emissaries. First, Shimon called Kepha and Andrew, his brother. Yaakov ben Safdai and Yochnan, his brother. Philip and Bar Talmai. Toma and Matiao, the tax collector. Yaakov ben Halfai and Tadai, Shimon the Zealot, and Yuda from Creote, who betrayed him. These twelve, Yeshua sent out with the following instructions Do not go into the territory of the Goyim, the Gentiles. Do not enter any town of Shomron, Samaria. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those afflicted with serat, expel demons. You have received without paying, so give without asking payment. Don't take money in your belts, no gold, no silver, no copper, and for the trip don't take a pack, an extra shirt, shoes, or a walking stick, a worker should be given what he needs. When you come to a town or a village, look for someone trustworthy and stay with him until you leave and when you enter someone's household, say, Shalom Aleichem, and if the home deserves it, let your Shalom rest upon it, if not, let your shalom return, shalom return to you. But if the people of the house or town will not welcome you or listen to you, leave it and shake its dust from your feet. Yes, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now pay attention, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, so be as prudent as snakes and as harmless as doves. Be on guard, there will be people who will hand you over to the local Sanhedrin and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, but when they bring you to trial, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. When the time comes, you will be given what you should say. For it will not be just you speaking, but the Spirit of your heavenly Father speaking through you. A brother will betray his brother to death, a father his child. Children will turn against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of Me. But whoever holds out till the end will be preserved from harm. When you are persecuted in one town, run away to another. Yes, indeed, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A Talmud, a disciple, is not greater than his rabbi, a slave is not greater than his master. It is enough for a Talmud that he becomes like his rabbi, a slave like his master. Now, if people have called the head of the house Baal how much more will they malign the members of his household? So don't fear them. There is nothing covered that will be not uncovered, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are powerless to kill the soul. Rather. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehinnom. Aren't sparrows sold for next to nothing, two for an Assyrian? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's consent. As for you, every hair on your head has been counted. So do not be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me in the presence of others, I will also acknowledge in the presence of my Father in Heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in Heaven. Now, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the land. It is not peace I have come to bring, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, so that a man's enemies, they will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than he loves me, it's not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves me, it's not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his execution stake and follow me, it's not worthy of me. Whoever finds his own life will lose it, but the person who loses his life for My sake will find it. Whoever receives you is receiving Me, and whoever receives Me is receiving the One who sent Me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive the reward that a prophet gets. And anyone who receives a Sadiq, a holy man, because he is a sodic, will receive the reward that a sodic gets. Indeed, if someone gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, yes, I tell you, he will certainly not lose his reward. The listing of the names of the original 12 disciples isn't particularly remarkable as this kind of register of followers of a, of a Master or a Rabbi was pretty customary. So what, are we, what we are meant to notice, however, is this preeminence of Peter. Verse 2 says, These are the names of the 12 de- disciples, first Peter, See, the Greek word typically translated as first is protos. Protos. It means first, but it means it in the sense of rank. So the rank is first. It's a position of honor. Huh? Notice how Judas is listed last as the most dishonored of the twelve. The structure that Matthew presents in in Matthew chapter 10, it presents the 12 in six groups of two. He says no more about the reason for that structure. However, in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, we read in chapter 6, verse 7 Yeshua summoned the 12 and started sending them out in pairs, giving them authority over the unclean spirits. So Matthew was presenting not only the names of the original twelve, but also how Yeshua paired them up as he sent them out in two men teams to present the good news to their fellow countrymen. Now while siblings such as Peter and Andrew were part of the mix, they were paired up as a rather obvious decision. Now it's instructive though how Jesus paired up Simon the Zealot with Judas. The Greek word used that is usually translated in English as Zealot is Canaanites. Therefore many Bible versions will read Simon the Zealot, or better Simon the Canaanite. That's not the best translation. The Greek word Canaanites is not trying to translate the word Canaanites, who are the Canaanites, that rather ancient and even then a more or l- less extinct people group. Rather what it is trying to translate is the Ar- Aramaic word Canaan. and that means enthusiast, or zealot, or control freak. Saying that Shimon, Simon, was a zealot meant that he belonged to a militant movement of Jews that advocated for resistance, even rebellion against Rome. Zealot, the term, was intended to distinguish a man who was zealous for the Torah. But in fact, for them, the Torah was mainly used as a disingenuous prop to provide cover for their often violent actions that were nationalistic in intent and much less so religious. I would compare them to the actions of the Ku Klux Klan that uses the Bible as a prop to practice hate and violence against non-Whites and non-Protestants. I find it a fascinating choice that Christ would choose Simon to be part of his inner circle. Does that mean that this Simon gave up his former relationship with his activist group and no longer pushed for political revolution? Well, We don't know for certain, but my speculation is that to some degree he must have. But even more head-scratching huh, is the choice of Yoda better known in Christendom as Judas. Now, the complete Jewish Bible says that he was Judas from Creote. Other versions simply leave it as Judas Iscariot and sort of leave it up to the reader to decide what that means. Interpreting this to mean a person from a certain village called Creote is very doubtful. Far more likely, Iscariot is an attempt to translate the Hebrew word "sakariim," and the Sakariim were a known splinter group of the Zealots, and they were the most violent. Some were assassins, <laughs> but typically they assassinated other Jews, only rarely Romans. Their reason for targeting their fellows those Jews who were murdered were seen as not being zealous enough to support the resistance movement. Now, it is believed that the group of about a thousand Jews who occupied Herod's desert fortress of Masada following the failed Jewish Rebellion of 70 AD were Zecharim. They committed mass suicide hours before the Romans finally broke through their defenses after months of siege. So as they say, Simon and Judas were birds of a feather, and they made an obvious pairing. Maybe it was so they could not only get along with one another, but also they had the reputation, they had the contacts to be able to approach a rebellious segment of Jewish society that the other 10 disciples were afraid of, or were far less likely to be given an audience, perhaps this is a living lesson for us all. But especially for church leadership, it is more effective ministry when we can send out people of like mind as a team. And when we can employ people of the same culture as those we are trying to reach, it's all the better. This means that we may be sending out people that are quite different from the leadership and they don't fit a universal profile. They might enthusiastically embrace some, but not all, of the preferred doctrine Maybe even practice it in ways that aren't entirely familiar or comfortable to us. I can tell you from experience that this approach makes leadership much more difficult, as they say, it's like herding cats. But that's the job of leaders. We can make it a lot easier on ourselves by requiring conformity but I don't see that as something Christ would have us do, because it certainly doesn't look like He did. At the same time, it's essential that the congregation accept into the fold those that don't look like them, or perhaps don't think like them in all ways. I mean, just look at the original 12 disciples some fishermen a government tax collector, and a couple of militant political activists. They were all Jews. and So who did Christ send them to? Various segments of Jewish society. In fact, in verse 5, Yeshua directly admonished them not to go to Gentiles. They also weren't to go to the Samaritans that were a mix of Jews, non-Jews, and half-Jews. The problem was that the Samaritans were essentially considered as Gentiles, in that by now they had erected their own temple, complete with their own separate priesthood, and practiced a religion that even though it involved some elements of Torah, it had melded with some clearly pagan concepts and practices. Rather, Yeshua instructs, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the prior lesson, we exposed what the term house of Israel meant. Briefly, it meant the 12 tribes of Israel, including those so called 10 lost tribes. However, the main thing to take from this is that at this point, Yeshua's focus was strictly on the seed of Abraham. Gentiles weren't on the radar of Yeshua's outreach ministry right then. Now the point at which that changed was after His resurrection. Therefore we can see develop in all the Gospels a kind of a a before and after scenario. Pre-resurrection ministry focus, although rather short duration, was entirely upon the descendants of the 12 tribes. Post-resurrection, the ministry expanded to include Gentiles. Now, Naturally, at first, it was Jews who were sent out to evangelize Gentiles because it was Jews who were trained and instructed in the faith. The Jew Paul, on the other hand, is representative of the second generation of believers who took the message of salvation in Yeshua specifically to Gentile nations and also made some new leaders, some of whom were Gentile, but many of whom were Jewish. And I'm not sure which generation of evangelists had the more difficult task. The first generation of believers were assigned to take the message only to Jews, who had a long history in which man-made traditions had crept in and become deeply rooted into their faith. The message the disciples brought usually challenged what those Jews had been taught And history tells us that relatively few of them could accept it. The second generation of Jewish disciples brought the message to Gentiles who had no history of worshiping the God of Israel and so had no concrete preconceived notions. I mean, I've often thought that in many ways it might be easier to teach those who are a kind of a blank tablet than it is to teach those who must first unlearn wrong beliefs before right ones can replace them. That is why ministry to youth in any culture is so vital. Getting taught right doctrine from the start of their lives is so much easier on them and on believing leadership than to try to straighten things out later. And what is it that the twelve disciples are to teach and to proclaim? The same message Yeshua Himself brought. The Kingdom of Heaven is near. Now don't take the idea of near as meaning not yet here. My house can be near to my neighbor's house. That doesn't mean my neighbor's house doesn't exist. Later, as we encounter Christ's several recorded parables, we're going to find that many were attempting to explain this difficult concept of the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. So get it clear in your minds. This initial sending out of disciples was not to declare that Jesus was the Messiah or that he was God on earth, it was only a preliminary stage of evangelism and it was to announce that the Kingdom of God was near to the Jewish people. It was meant in the sense of proximity and maturity, not in the sense of not existing just yet. But as with Christianity, no doubt the Jewish people didn't all think about that message the same way. It is still something that Christianity struggles to understand, and so various denominations have formed different doctrines to explain it. Now, we are not going to entertain that at the moment, we will get into it in later lessons, however, this brings us to the issue of the process of evangelizing, and we are not going to get into a multi-step procedure, but rather simply talk about it from a more general vantage point. Just as who does the evangelizing matter, and so what the subject matter is and how it is presented also matters. For instance, these Torah class lessons are not meant for non believers, although, by no means are non believers excluded, rather, they are fashioned primarily for those who in varying degrees already accept the authority of the Bible, the existence of God, forgiveness of sins offered by Jesus of Nazareth. They are evangelistic in one sense because we always advocate for Christ and for taking His message out to the world. On the other hand, these are not seeker-oriented whereby we explain the basics of our faith Over and over again every week, hoping the seeker will finally come to trust Christ. Other churches, well, they're more interested in sending out missionaries to cultures who aren't familiar with the God of the Bible and with Christ. Some simply want to do good deeds in the community. They do not emphasize it as any more than that. And there are many more examples I could cite, but that'll do for now. The issue is there are many motives and means. That are perfectly valid in the process of evangelism. Then we have the matter of suitability as concerns age. A 60-year-old who has been a believer for decades is usually more mature in his or her faith than a 15-year-old. If that 60-year-old finally came to realize some years earlier just how important focused study of God's Word is, and how important it is to get up every day and to choose to be holy, then he knows and understands God, His commandments, and how God operates at a much deeper level than a 15-year-old who simply has not lived long enough to experience God so fully or to. Acquire that biblical knowledge. Not only that, but the young person is not yet mature in body or mind. They have so much going on in their young lives, beginning with trying to figure out who they are. And each kind of activity they engage in takes up a portion of their time and their energy and their focus. The priorities of a 15 year old. Look nothing like the priorities of a 60 year old. At least I hope not. Therefore, we must know our audience and always allow for varying degrees of maturity and accept the many stages of of our journey with Christ. I concede to you that 60 year olds, even 50 year olds, can only understand what matters to that 15 year old at best in an intellectual way, but more typically, it is nearly impossible to connect with them on the level they need so they can hear their level. It is like the person who's lost a spouse. It's far more able than one who is not to be able to connect with and comfort a person that is recently widowed. But to the Lord, that 15-year-old who is as yet immature in their faith, they are every bit as valuable to the Kingdom as the mature in faith 60-year-old. Consider this issue of the evangelism process in another way. If Yeshua's target had only been intellectuals, He would have sent out intellectuals. If His target were only the common folk, He would have sent out only common folk and not also a tax collector, who by definition was educated and held a privileged position. If His target was only those who sought peace, those who stayed away from the center of political unrest in Jerusalem. He wouldn't have set out the political activists, Judas and Simon. He also didn't tell the 12 disciples the exact words to use or the company they should keep. So for each segment of Jewish population the message would have to be uniquely tuned for their ears. Christ gave us the model for evangelism, and you know what, it's anything but rigid in its expression, or only for a certain group of people with certain qualifications to carry it out. Those 12 disciples were given the authority to do the same things their Master did, heal sick people, raise dead people to life cleanse people who are unclean with serat and to perform exorcisms. What does it mean to be given authority? Authority is something that is granted by another. Yeshua says it is His Father who gives Him the authority to do what He does. It gives Him not just the right but the power to do things within a certain sphere of influence, it is not His own power. It is, as it were, power given that by definition can be taken away by the highest authority. And now Yeshua, as His Father's agent on earth, bestows authority on the disciples to operate within a certain well-defined Sphere of influence, and what is that? The Holy Land. Now, going out meant they'd be traveling now, not as extensively as Paul, but still, they would be gone from home and from occupation from time to time. And as they went out and traveled, they were commanded to not ask for money for the giving of the message, they weren't even to take any of their own money with them. The last few words of verse 10 say, a worker should be given what he needs. See, We need to understand this from a 1st century Middle Eastern context, not a 21st century Western context. Hospitality, the taking in of guests that you don't know and caring for them, was perhaps the number one virtue within Middle Eastern culture of that day. Now Remember, these twelve were traveling around the Holy Land where this virtue was the norm. It would be different if they, like Paul, were traveling around the Gentile populated parts of the Roman Empire where this virtue of hospitality wasn't quite the same. So despite what they might be teaching and preaching, if the disciples asked a Jewish family for hospitality It would have been rude beyond imagination for a household to refuse them. The reality is that these instructions from Christ are only fully operable in a society that is structured like the disciples were in at that time. We get a look at what that looked like in that era in the next couple of verses. So in verse 11 it says, that during their travels through the many small towns of Judea and the Galilee, the disciples were to search for someone that was trustworthy to stay with. So Yeshua was saying, Look, use your senses and your brain. Be a little bit cautious and diligent whom you approach for hospitality. Don't just dis- descend upon the first house you see. I mean doesn't that seem like common sense more than some divinely inspired instruction? Well of course it does. And every traveler of that day would have done the same. But you know <laughs> sometimes a misguided faith can make us look leap before we look. That is we think That if what we're doing is for the Lord, that we can throw caution and common sense to the wind. And He'll somehow make things work out okay for us. You know, these disciples, these 12, man, they were really fired up. And Yeshua didn't want them doing something foolish, as they looked for someone to put them up, care for them for a day, maybe more. Verse 12 says that when they did choose a household to stay in, they were to say shalom aleichem, meaning peace be with you. That was just a standard Jewish courtesy. Then the next verse says that if the household does not deserve your shalom, you are to take it back and leave. I mean, that sounds rather strange Till we understand that saying peace be with you, shalom aleichem, was much more than saying hello, it was a blessing bestowed. So the idea is that the disciple, after choosing a household to stay in and then being offered hospitality, is to bless that household. And among the Jewish people, blessings were thought to have real, actual power in them. And in fact, I think they do. Blessings were very nearly an unseen but living entity. So, if after a little while the disciples see that, there, that maybe his choice turns out not to be a good place to be hosted for whatever reason, he can retract his blessing. He can literally remove his blessing of shalom on that household and go. Now, that might sound a little weird to us. But that is because it is as much Tradition as it is Bible. And Jesus is just making clear that all the standard rules of hospitality that are usual and customary still apply for these traveling disciples. Now, while the protocol of evangelizing that was laid out here is steeped in the 1st century, and especially in Jewish tradition, some elements of it can be applied today. Look, sleeping indoors safely and having enough to eat is a given for most people in the West. Most modern missionaries going out will have these basic necessities accounted for before they ever depart. But in the first century, sleeping on the ground, under the stars, and missing meals That was a regular part of traveling for the common man. Even then, taking some amount of money, perhaps an extra pair of sandals, that was usual as they always needed to buy things along the way or be prepared for unforeseen contingencies, Yeshua told them not to do that, instead to essentially go out with nothing but the shirt on their back. This was to be a true faith ministry. But true faith ministry does not mean, as it seems to today, having all your needs and comforts met. It will also involve the very real likelihood of discomfort, maybe even danger. At the same time, having no money and not asking for money in order to subsidize their journey would have been admired and it would have alleviated suspicions as to their motives you know i think such a notion still applies in many cultures you know i can tell you that a friend of mine who spends more than half the year in england and has for much of his life assures me that money and christianity don't go together well there Christians with money are immediately under suspicion, as are Christians who are too forward about asking for donations to do their work. Now I don't necessarily think that such a cynical attitude is warranted, but at the same time there must be a balance. This is not the first century. Because of the way the world is today, ministry can't be done without a source of funding, the problem is that too often the bulk of the funding is perceived as going for the minister and not for the ministry. So ministers have to be aware of this and behave accordingly. No doubt even in Christ's day there were charlatans that fleeced the flock. People were wary. So for the disciples to be cared for they had to require very little. For themselves. Now, the instruction we read in verse 14 seems out of character for the forgiving, compassionate, long suffering, patient Yeshua. He says that if a town or a village doesn't welcome the disciple, the disciple should what? Shake the dust off from your feet and leave. That is, the disciple is to leave and not look back. It is kind of the opposite of try, try again. It is an expression that also involves an element of rejection and disgust by the one shaking the dust off their feet. Now, What kind of town might not welcome the disciple? Of course, it is one that doesn't want to hear doesn't want to accept the good news of the disciples about the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven. So the village gets into a confrontation with the disciple and doesn't want them there, but a little bit more plainly. The townspeople like what they believe, they are comfortable with what they believe. They don't want to discuss it, they want to have their lives messed with. Is this not what the main problem is with those who re- reject Christ? They inherently know that if they accept his truth, then they're going to have to turn away from things they've believed or they've liked up to now. And that their lives are going to be different. But I can also attest to you that it is the same way within. Christianity. Those who have accepted wrong teaching and live securely within their own personal spiritual bubbles don't want it popped. They don't want anything about their understanding of God or the Bible challenged because it might require some soul searching and some change. The twelve disciples were going to Jewish towns they were going to go out and talk to Jewish people, nobody else. These people of course had a centuries-long Hebrew faith background. They didn't question if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was their God, or if He was real. So what was the problem that Yeshua says the the disciples were going to occasionally encounter? Well, we can't know, what each individual the disciples encountered truly believed or thought about their faith, it certainly wasn't the same for everyone. And whatever it was exactly the disciples told these folks about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven meant for many Jews, it wasn't welcome. And says Jesus, when that welcome mat's pulled up, leave spend your time and effort elsewhere. Now a word to the wise. If I've received one, I've received a hundred emails and letters from on-fire believers and the followers of Torah class that tell me they have tried and tried to tell their pastor or elders or some members of their congregation that they attend, that they perhaps need to delve deeper into the Bible or to re-examine some of the doctrines they preach and practice. And when they are rejected or even shunned, they tell me they are going to hang in there and they are going to win that battle of wills because truth is on their side. They are going to stay, they are going to keep fighting. To have what they've learned given a proper hearing before their church leadership, even if they don't have a friend left by the time they're done. I, I've not heard of a good and hoped for result from this, although now that I've said it, I'm pretty sure I'll get an email from somebody who was successful. The point's this. While it isn't necessary that we all have to agree on every nuance of every doctrine of the church or synagogue you attend in order for you to stay and enjoy your relationships, beware that you don't stay in a situation where you're wasting your time or you're being a pebble in the shoe to those around you or you're causing conflict. I grant you that going upstream against the current is in some way part of every believer's experience. But going to a communal worship service and listening to your rabbi or pastor, that ought to be a joy, not a negative experience. It wasn't going to be good for the town or for the disciples if they were expressly not wanted. So, Christ said, leave! If that was the case. And equally so, it's not good for you. And it's not good for your congregation that you're part of if there's a serious gulf in what you each strongly believe and hold on to. It's not good for you. Well, verse 15 has Yeshua laying out the consequences for that town or village rejecting. Not only the message, but the messenger who brings it. He says it will be even more destructive for them on the Day of Judgment than for what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. When will that consequence He is speaking of arrive? On the Day of Judgment. Now, While I think some amount of hyperbole is involved on Christ's part because the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was about as thoroughly destructive as it gets. The point is, especially from the vantage point of the first century, that the destructive consequence of refusing to hear and accept the good news of the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven wouldn't be that same day, but it would come very soon, and at the same time when God judged the entire world. The Jewish people, Jesus' disciples, and even the second generation Apostles like Paul, all believed that the end of days and the day of judgment were to occur at any moment, any moment, and generally speaking the Jewish people also believed that it would be a judgment on the Gentile world, not on them. So whatever Yeshua precisely meant About the consequences for denying His message? The consequence would occur very soon, and more importantly, the Holy Land and the Jewish people would not be held harmless from it. We'll continue in Matthew next week.